Hey friends, a quick note at the start that we have loved this every two weeks thing that we've been doing over the summer. I mean, like a lot. (laughs) Sorry, I was just (laughs) caught off guard by how like furtive and sultry it was. (laughs) I wasn't ready for that energy. A lot of people are caught off guard by how furtive and sultry I am. Brie, I want you to have more time to work on being furtive and sultry. Wow. So we're going to stick with this every two weeks plan. You're going to get Greece today and then next week nothing. I mean, your life is probably filled with things, but next week, none of us. And then in two weeks, another episode. We also kind of realized that it's kind of a big ask for us to watch a movie each week, which also made us think that maybe it was a big ask to ask you to watch a movie each week. So enjoy your fall, enjoy the episode, and we will see you every two weeks going forward. My love for wiry, blue-eyed men is certainly informed by having watched Grease a hundred times before I was 10 years old. Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends pick movies for each other to watch and can't figure out which movies our audience would like to see. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. And this week, I have chosen a film that I think delights everyone, or at least a lot of people, hopefully some of you. It is the 1978 musical classic, Grease. Brie, as we established last week, against all odds, you have never seen this film? Never seen it. I have seen a bad teen summer camp selections from Greece. I've definitely seen the clips of Olivia Newton-John in her like leather outfit at the end or whatever. And I know vaguely some of the songs just from like, you know, osmosis. But I don't even really know what this is about. I think it's like a bad boy meets good girl and then turns her into a bad girl. It's the best I got. You're not miles off. You can expect all of the teen movie tropes you'd ever hoped for, including, as you can see from one glance at the cast, some of the world's oldest teenagers. (laughs) It's not a movie about teens if they aren't actually 30. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into that discussion when the episode (laughs) starts. But you should expect a lot of fun singing and dancing, a lot of barely relevant plot, and I think some really amazing performances, including an incredible supporting cast that we'll get into after the break as well. Any questions or concerns before we get going? The name Rizzo has just popped into my head and I can't wait to go watch it. It's either Stockard Channing or a Muppet Rat, and either way we're happy. We'll see you after the drum beats. <laughs> We're back and we watched Grease, the 1978 musical directed by Randall Kleiser, based on the stage musical by Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey and adapted for the screen by Alan Carr and Bronte Woodard. It stars John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Stockard Channing, Jeff Conaway, and a bunch of other people pretending to be teens, as well as some old Hollywood luminaries in adult roles like Eve Arden, Frankie Avalon, Sid Caesar, Joan Blondell, Alice Ghostly, and many more. The plot is every bit as chaotic as the cast list. We are going through a year at Rydell High. Danny and Sandy are struggling to continue their summer romance. There's a lot of peer pressure. There's a televised dance contest. There's a high-stakes car race. There is a pregnancy scare. There is a random carnival. None of it makes any sense. 
This was the highest grossing movie of 1978. On a budget of only $6 million, it made almost $160 million domestically on its first run and totaled out at $366 million for its entire worldwide gross. So this movie blew it out of the park. But that's neither here nor there because we're not listening to everybody else. We're listening to us. Brie, how was your first experience with Grease? This to me felt like the anti-hairspray. And and I say that for two reasons. First off, though, I know obviously this movie was like aimed at adults at the time. I think most people of our generation saw it as young children. But as a 40-year-old woman watching it the first time... All of these people being in their mid-30s was just a ghastly experience of watching them attempt to play (laughs) teens. And to the anti-hairspray point, Hairspray was such a detailed, rich movie that loved its characters and was really, like, inhabiting them. And this movie didn't feel like that. This was, like, all surface and, like, no heart. And I didn't love it. I'm not going to lie. It's a really hard movie to get into if you don't have that nostalgia for it. I realized as I was watching it, thinking about it, there are a lot of fun moments. There are some big glitzy dance numbers. Mm -hmm. Quite a bit changed from the stage musical to the movie production. Some of that was related to who they cast and what a big star they were. So John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John get a lot more central placement, and a lot of the side characters are entirely sidelined. Most of the songs that were cut are songs that belonged to side characters, and so none of them get developed. That's really interesting. So the stage show is really about a group of friends, not about necessarily Danny and Sandy. They would still count as the main characters, but there's a lot more songs sung by side characters to sort of flesh them out and make them part of the crew and not just a sort of homogenous glob of late 20s actors in no makeup pretending that they're teens. We got to be real about some crimes done to Stockard Channing, but also mostly to the guy who plays Sonny. That man has got to be pushing 40 and he looks every day of it. Okay, I did a chart of the ages. We're just going to run through this right now because everyone needs to know. Stockard Channing as Rizzo was the oldest of the crew. She was 33 when she filmed this. Michael Tucci as Sonny is the next oldest. He was 31. Then we've got Jan at 30. The guy who runs the rival gang, Leo, also at 30. Chacha <laughs> DiGregorio, 29. Olivia Newton-John as Sandy, 28. Barry Pearl as Duty, 27. Kanicki, Jeff Conaway, 26. Didi Khan as Frenchie, 25. Patty Simcox, Susan Buckner, 23. John Travolta, also 23. Marty, Dinah Manoff is 21. Kelly Ward as Putsy is 20. Eddie Deason as Eugene is also 20. The lone teenager is Lorenzo Lamas in a non-speaking role. He is 19. I think I'm actually more horrified learning that many of the cast were in their 20s because they all looked like they were in their 30s. Like, Stockard Channing looked like she went directly from this to the set of The West Wing. (laughs) But it's not like Travolta and Olivia Newton-John look young. Like, my God, when they dress her in that final outfit, Newton-John looked about, I don't know, 35, 36. What the fuck was going on with the makeup? They all looked so old. I think one of the challenges is that 
At no point does this script feel as though it is about teenagers. No, that's the thing. So many of these situations, other than a slumber party, are exceptionally adult. None of them talk like teenagers. None of them have teenage concerns, other than they are clumsy romantically. It almost makes more sense if they just age everyone up, because there's no point in setting this in a high school. Honestly, you could have set this in a college and it would make so much, I mean, as much sense as it makes, but more so. I also really struggled to understand the timeline. Only when we got to graduation did I realize that a year had passed instead of a week. Sandy arrives at school and then is like performing with the cheerleaders the next day, as far as I could tell. Yeah. For instance, the dance that they set up in the middle isn't the winter ball or prom or something that you can place on a calendar. It's just a thing that happened. And you're right. There's no indicator that that wasn't a week later. Like, I don't know why we're expected to know that nine months passed. All of them act like they're attending some conference. No one acts like they have known each other for three years and have deep relationships. Like, there's that one girl who I think pops by a couple of times who's running for vice president of the class or something. And she says about Rizzo, like, that's who I was talking about. Like, they don't know her name. They've gone to school together for three years. I know you don't know everyone at your high school, but like, Rizzo kind of stands out as the leader of the girl gang is my point. So the other sort of general script problem is that The original, original musical was apparently a lot grittier, and these gangs were actually sort of tough kids who had a lot of sex and weren't sanitized enough for a movie version. So there's a lot of cleaning up that got done to make all of these characters PG-rated, and I think it shows in the fact that none of them seem like they have a personality. Frenchie was my favorite. She was the only one I really liked. I had very limited knowledge about this. I knew Sandy and Danny and it was like, you know, will they won't they because she's a good girl and he's like a greaser. And then I knew that Rizzo was like a beloved character. She's a bitch. Like, fuck that girl. (laughs) She's so mean. It seemed like there was some kind of subtext that like she and Danny had been together or she wanted to get with Danny. And that's why she was mean to Sandy. But like, That didn't play out at all and was never discussed again. So all I was left with was, oh, she's mean. Yeah, I think Rizzo stands out largely because she is dynamic. I think that Stockard Channing is a really interesting, charismatic performer, even if she is essentially part of the faculty walking around that school. Oh, my God. The hair. Why did they give her that haircut? There's a lot of questions. There are no good answers. Her performance is charming is the wrong word because you're right, the character's not super likable, but there's at least something to latch onto there. Like Dinah Manoff as Marty is doing a fine job, but I don't really know what her character trait is other than she maybe is attracted to men who are too old for her. Yeah, we'll talk about the national bandstand thing later, I assume. Oh, will we? Uh, I can't remember the actual name of the song. I've written a note naming it Rizzo's Lament, about (laughs) (laughs) about how she's decided to be this kind of girl. And that was the closest thing to like a personality trait that any of them got. Because even Frenchie, the actor, is doing all that work. Like Frenchie on the page doesn't have any character aside from, I want to go to beauty school, but then Frankie Avalon told me I sucked, so I didn't. 
And notably, to your point, Rizzo has two songs to sing. So you get a sort of small arc for her where you get her comedic beginning and then a sad teen pregnancy lament. Hearing you talk about the fact that this musical essentially got neutered makes a lot more sense because it wasn't even clear to me who she was possibly pregnant by because the last time we saw her in the back of a car with anybody was the condom was broken, but then we were more focused on the Scorpions guy. And then she went to the dance with the Scorpions guy. So when she was like, I'm not actually pregnant, I was like, it's not even your baby anyway. But it turns out, I guess maybe it was. I don't know. Like, I just didn't care about any of them. All of them could have gone into the sea and I would have been like, this is fine. It's a shame that more attention wasn't paid to some of those characters. I think the actors are doing their best sometimes they're doing too much they're doing a lot of work yes (laughs) the sweat is visible particularly among the supporting men who are just the goofiest idiots which is only heightened by the fact that they do look like they are in their 30s and so their slapstick zaniness It wouldn't read as teenage from teenagers, but it's way off when they look like their parents. I'm going to try not to harp on this too much, but like it gets wrong all the things that Hairspray gets right. Like a feeling of stakes, a feeling of understanding what teens are into. I mean, this entire movie for me was like that Steve Buscemi gif. (laughs) The absolute nadir of the film for me was knickety. You got to say it one more time. Kanicki? That guy. Walks up to John Travolta. He is doing the saddest, like, teen swagger I've ever seen in my life. And I was so embarrassed for the boys. The girls get away with it for the most part because they're much more likable, but the boys are a mess. Jeff Conaway as Kanicki was done particularly dirty by the production John Travolta, knowing that Olivia Newton-John was having a solo written for her, campaigned to have Kinnicky's song taken away from him, which is why Kinnicky doesn't sing about his own car. Oh, John Travolta took Grease Lightning? Grease Lightning is Kinnicky's solo, and by all aspects of the plot, that would make a lot more sense. He's been talking about the car this whole time, and then John Travolta's like, but I'll sing about it. Well, not super great because that song is not in John Travolta's range. The top parts of it are, the bottom parts are not. I think the actual nadir of the film for me was when John Travolta rubbed saran wrap across his crotch. Grease Lightning was the low point. Like that that song is awful and I hated it. Wow, I was going to ask how you felt about the musical numbers because those are the strength of this movie. So I guess we'll start there that you didn't care for Grease Lightning. Which songs, if any, grabbed you? You know, there are a number of songs that entered the popular culture, including Grease Lightning, um, the one they sing at the end, and then Summer Lovin' or whatever it's called. Aside from the Rizzo song in the back half, I think the ones that did not enter the zeitgeist are exactly where they should be. (laughs) Like, even the, the good songs here are so zany and a little over the top. Like, None of these are, like, bangers for me. Interesting. I grew up with these songs, so I have a lot more affection for them for that reason. What I noticed this time, I would also put the songs in two camps, but I would divide them slightly differently in that this is a musical ostensibly about the 50s, 
all of the original songs sound like they're in the 50s, and you can tell which new songs were written with a very obviously disco bent for no goddamn reason. For sure, for sure. I do want to step back and say that you mentioned this at the top. The choreography for the big numbers, like the big Ferris wheel number at the end, and then also the National Bandstand thing, those are incredible. Like, those production numbers are really, really good. I forgot how much I loved the bandstand number in the middle. It's so good. Those dances are explosive. Everyone's doing great. And I got to give a shout out. John Travolta is a limber little fella. He kills it in a dance number. One of the few notes I have here is that like you cannot argue with John Travolta being a great dancer and a dynamic dancer where like you're looking at him like he does some pirouettes in that national bandstand number that are just great. He's a spectacular performer. His singing is a little I like that he's a high tenor. But they tried to make him sing some pieces that weren't for him. And you can just hear how much more comfortable he is in that upper range. When he's on in the singing, he's really on. I think you're right that especially Greased Lightning is not for him. I had sort of forgotten that he is so capable with his body. Like, there's a moment at the end of Summer Nights where he just strikes a pose. And I was like, my God, he looks amazing there. Like, he knows how to hit it. I learned from reading this that... He actually was in the Broadway production of Grease in a smaller role, and he did eventually go touring as Danny Zuko. So he was very comfortable with that aspect of it. And you can absolutely tell that amongst the cast, he really knows how to do the dancing. Absolutely. So the flip side of that is that I have an extremely you with John Cusack situation with John Travolta, where I don't get it. Like, I can recognize that he's a skilled performer in this, but I don't understand what Sandy's up to. (laughs) Entirely fair. I think this is another situation where some of it is dependent on timing, because if you are familiar with the latter works of John Travolta and certainly the latter public persona of John Travolta... Yeah. ...then it's a lot harder to leap that hurdle, whereas I was just a nascently gay child looking into the world's bluest eyes. And that's what I mean when I say that I think some of this is cloaked in that nostalgia, whereas I was watching a whole bunch of adults frenetically attempt to make themselves teens. And to say some things that you probably shouldn't say in front of small children. This is, even though sanitized from the stage play, still a pretty raunchy movie. Really? I mean... Greased Lightning has the repeated line, Pussy Wagon, for instance. Man, I was not even listening. I was absolutely checked out on that one. (laughs) I should also say I had to watch this in two batches. I couldn't get through it in one viewing. (laughs) Oh, I think, for instance, the broken condom went right over my head as a kid. But that is a scene in which two teenagers are discussing having unprotected sex in the back of a car. That was actually one of the few moments that I found genuinely touching because it was really clear that he was a virgin and had been like saving that condom. It did then make me sad to learn that they had just gone on and had sex after he had a fight with another man. I just assumed that that sex had not occurred after he like threw a rock at a car and got made fun of. I I would have had trouble recapturing the moment, but that's me. Rizzo is a real go-with-the-flow girl in this movie. She is wiling out throughout. She is 
never in a scene that she is not prepared to absolutely leave for no reason. (laughs) She leaves the party that she is at to go hang out with the boys. (laughs) She's at school and gets into some other dude's car for no reason. Like, she's just always fucking off. No one has any motivation. I know. And, you know, and then there's scenes like Summer Lovin' where it seems like everyone's friends and there's a real interest in, like, what Sandy has to say from a number of girls. And then later absolutely no one knows who anyone is it is just so unrelated to teenage experience that it feels so faux it just feels like they felt like if they painted enough like green and pink and blue on everything that they would arrive at teenagedom and they did not it to my mind i think a lens to view this through in some ways is a commercial lens like you talked about how a lot of this has bled through into the zeitgeist it's clear watching this how intentional that was like hopelessly devoted to you is a pop single. That song was in her contract that she needed a solo to release because it's just her alone singing about a generic love because it was more important to have a marketable single than it was to connect that moment to a plot or to connect her to other characters. But Danny has almost the exact same single. And that's another song that, while it was a moment in the original show, they rewrote the song to make it a different song for Danny to sing. Like, a lot of the stuff in here is not the original material. It's kind of odd that it's even called Grease because it seems to bear so little resemblance to the source material. For what it's worth, you describing that has made me want to watch Grease the musical. I regret to inform you that because of the success of the movie, most stagings of the musical as we know it tend to cleave more to the changes that the movie made. If you show up and they don't end with You're the One That I Want, audiences are confused. Technically, the movie did not end with You're the One That I Want. Technically, it ended with like Zooby Dooby Dooby or whatever the (laughs) hell. That number was fun. We'll talk about the end when we get to the end, but I was extremely done by that point and I wanted the credits to roll. Yeah, after spacing out the musical numbers so evenly it is strange to put two of them directly back to back absolutely i realized watching it this time that this movie takes for fucking ever to get started we have that animated intro which again is just a barry gibb song slapped over everything for some reason and also i think this is your third animated intro to i think my one so we're keeping track you're keeping track. <laughs> That's what I meant by we're. <laughs> I apologize for this one specifically because it does drag out the interminable beginning. The other thing that drags the intro out so long is that they take the time to introduce all the individual characters, but because none of them are individualized, it ends up being a huge waste of space. And none of them are named, so I was just like, It's that doofy old one, that other one. I would also like to posit that Putsy belongs in jail for upskirting those two girls. Fuck that guy. Yeah, we need to reinstate the exile for a few characters here. I mean, I come from a shunning culture, so. I don't want to be around people, so I'm happy to shun as many of them as possible. (laughs) I'm also in a hardcore shunning space at the moment, but it's like me shunning myself away from others. So as we get into the plot, I do want to give some attention to Eve Arden as the principal, who is fucking killing it in this role. 
I was so into the relationship between the principal and Blanche. I was super, super duper into Alice Ghostly as Ms. Murdoch, who's the auto shop teacher. <laughs> Adore her. It was just so clear that those people were comfortable in their roles, and it made them so much less schlocky. And notably, the adult cast is largely incredibly well-known people who had huge careers. Joan Blondell, who plays Vi the Waitress, got her start in 1930. This is one of her 10 final roles. She has over 160 IMDb credits. Oh, wow. She's a real J.T. Walsh here. Okay. Yeah. Sid Caesar is obviously an incredibly well-known person. Eve Arden has been doing movies since movies existed. The adult cast is huge names who are giving it their all and know exactly how much all to give. It's even just fun to see, like, a kind of old lady as the shop teacher. Like, that's cool. Yeah, they never reference it or act as though that might be out of the norm. She doesn't look to me like someone who fixes cars, but that's my prejudice. It's the most feminist thing the movie does, that's for sure. Well, dear God. So our first big musical number with the cast is Summer Lovin'. I think this is probably one of the most successful numbers in terms of getting the cast involved, getting a little bit of personality for everybody, giving our leads some plot. I think this does what musical numbers are supposed to do and what musical numbers in this movie seldom do. Yeah, Sandy's telling a very direct story because she's an innocent and Danny is telling a story that like makes him look good because he's, again, ostensibly a teen boy. And that's going to come back to bite him in future interactions with Sandy. So like that piece does a lot of good work in setting up. I'm not going to say stakes because I don't think this movie has any, but like at least some level of characterization for Danny. So that's a fun one to at least kick us off, even if it is sort of a bait and switch, because we move on to a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with goddamn anything. There's a lot of random stuff thrown in here. We start talking about that there's going to be a filmed dance and there's going to be a race. Both of those things are established as things that have stakes. Neither of them do. Well, first we have a pep rally that also reads real different from a 2021 perspective of like young people in like white shirts marching around a bonfire with like signs that say like death to the gladiators i was like oh no it's too much i did not really enjoy that the pep rally scene is also the thing that most exemplifies what i'm talking about when i say that these people are acting like they've all arrived at a professional conference like why are the greasers even there if y'all are so cool and you hate school and whatever the fuck else like why have you come to a pep rally at night it's not school time you don't have to be there no this is so obviously we need it for the plot stuff. As you pointed out, Sandy hasn't been at school long enough, to our knowledge, to audition to be a cheerleader, let alone to become one. And she can't do a cartwheel, so that should have like really kept her off the team. Oh, Sandy, it's not a great <laughs> showing from her. But yes, the greasers are there. The rival gang shows up at some point Why? for some reason. Do they even go to this school? No. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to take that back. They must because they're all at the National Bandstand thing. We know that Chacha goes to St. Bernadette's. She says that. There's no reference to the other guy going to any school or having a name of his own. So he's a mystery. 
Well, he's just gotten back from the Korean War. Why would he be in school? (laughs) If it turned out that he was Kaneki's dad, I'd believe it. I do like that the movie at least tries to make a commentary on how Danny's attempt at masculinity ends up being his own downfall in terms of getting the relationship that he wants. Like, if he was just acting like himself, he would have a nice girlfriend who he wanted to be with, and instead, he has to pretend to be someone else for his friends. Yeah, the movie struggles with Travolta, kind of in particular, overplaying some moments, but that was a nice moment. The next major thing that happens is that the ladies have a sleepover, which is a chance for Rizzo to openly mock Sandy while she is barfing in the next room. It's so unlikable. The song is cruel. All of the girls are worse people for having done it. And she is, again, five feet away. This is another one that looks real different in the rearview mirror. Because when I was a kid, I just thought of this as like a fun, silly number of girls having fun. It just feels like a musical number in the way that you think of a musical number. And only later am I like, oh, no. Sandy's feelings were desperately hurt as she was being peer pressured into stabbing herself. I gotta tell you, Frenchie's way out of line with that ear piercing, just full stop. Like, that's gotta go. Let me also stop to say that one of the real problems with this movie is that Sandy shouldn't be friends with these people. She doesn't fit in with them, and that's okay. I think she could find a different group of friends that wouldn't openly mock her and a boyfriend who wouldn't do more than hold hands, which appears to be what she wants. Honestly, The best version of Sandy's life is that she goes off with Patty Simcox and the cheerleaders, she gets to date Lorenzo Lamas, and everything goes well for her. And I don't like that the movie doesn't establish that as an option for Sandy. Like, Sandy's only options are to contort her entire body and personality into conforming to the school's lowest denominator. (laughs) But it's strange because... It establishes very clearly that she wants to date Danny. Why? It's baffling what we're expected to see other than girls love the bad boy. But I don't see anything lovable about what Danny is doing. He's rebuffed her rudely several times. Mm Mm-hmm. Sandy makes a lot of very bad decisions in this movie. Yes. (laughs) Let's move on to the next stupid musical number. We've already covered Grease Lightning to some extent. I do want to point out... That if you, like me, are watching this for the 50th time, you might let your eye wander over to the corner to notice that Alice Ghostly is occasionally dancing here. See, I would have loved that. You can go back and check that part. I'm definitely not going to. Um, (laughs) I do need you to account for the saran wrap. What is the purpose of the saran wrap? You'll be happy to know that there is Wikipedia and IMDb trivia about that. That is specifically a reference to the fact that apparently men in the 50s used to use saran wrap in lieu of a condom. That doesn't work, but teens thought that it did. All right, well, that's enough of the history of the 50s. Let's keep it moving past Grease Lightning. That song sucks. I don't care. I'm so sorry that you asked and that I knew the answer. (laughs) As always... Less context is more. So we're going to move right on to one of the better sequences in this movie, which is a montage of Danny Zuko trying to become a jock. He learns all the sports from scratch. 
It is so ridiculous that they portray that Danny Zuko doesn't know the basics of any American pastimes. I know. It's so good. And it's also that, like, the sport they start him out with is men's gymnastics. Chicks dig men's gymnastics. There are very many sports being offered at this high school for some reason. So, so many sports. They have all the equipment. <laughs> and also, Sid Caesar just stands back and laughs genially as one of his students repeatedly assaults other people. For my money, this sports, sports, sports section was the best part of the movie. I also think that this section is important plot-wise because it establishes that it's not just Sandy at the end making a big change. Like, I wish that the plot had stuck more with this idea that Danny is doing his best to adjust his persona for Sandy. I know that she sees him while he's running track and that's how they like reconnect. But because this is played for comedy and because it happens so early in the film, I don't think there's enough done here to make them equal to what happens with her transformation at the end. The other problem with Sandy and Danny's relationship is brought up very neatly in the next scene when he brings her to the diner and is embarrassed to be seen with her and tries to hide behind the menu. Yeah, that's a pretty big red flag, Sandy. It doesn't work, but it was deeply uncomfortable to watch. Like, Jesus Christ. I get that he wants to be able to be himself around her and he feels like he can't do that with his friends, but I don't fully grasp why he thinks that it would be impossible to be literally seen in public with her. And it also just reads as like, yet again, mean to Sandy, who hasn't done a damn thing aside from be like a nice open girl who's like willing to give everyone like a fifth chance. This is also the scene that establishes that Jan is apparently the fat one of the crew, which Jesus Christ... Chris, I had to turn on the subtitles because I was sure he was saying facts because I couldn't understand why she would be called fat. Aside from the concept that you shouldn't have the fat one, they haven't even fulfilled the brief. No, in earlier scenes, they do sort of dress her in baggier clothing. But by the time we get to the end, she is in form fitting dresses with everyone else. And she's the same size as them. After he's like, you're so fat. She's then like, okay, let's go out. Isn't that the same guy who was upskirting the girls at the beginning? Sure is. Into the sun with that one. <laughs> Not the actor. I'm sure he's fine. But like, I can't believe he's one of the ones that gets like a happy ending. Fuck that guy. Technically, the only people ejected into the sun at the end are Danny and Sandy for some reason. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> I'm also fine with this. Please go on. Uh, <laughs> so we then move on to... A beautifully charming scene entirely because of the two actors. We get Vi and Frenchie talking about her going to beauty school. It's just such a wonderful character moment from two people who aren't the leads in this movie. And to your point about stakes, this is the moment that feels like it has the most stakes because Frenchie is actually deciding whether it will help her life to drop out of high school or not. And she has a real decisive moment of, is this what I want to do with my life? Yeah, and she's, like, being strategic about what she wants to do next and whether or not this is going to help her meet her goals. And 
checks in with a trusted older person in order to, like, make an informed choice. Honest to God, Frenchie is the only character of the teens that I related to or, like, I felt like a young person. Didi Khan does an incredible job with the role. Let's just go right into the next musical number, which I think is one of the musical's greatest triumphs, though you're shaking your head, is Frankie Avalon singing Beauty School Dropout. The song was cruel, and I did not like it. Wow. He said that the only people that were going to go to her were hookers because she was like a dumb slut or something. And I was just like, I'm sorry. Get the fuck out of here. Like, this is her daydream. He didn't say she was a dumb slut. He did say she was bad at beauty school. But then he says something later about, am I about to look up the, oh, baby, don't sweat it. You're not cut out to hold a job. Better forget it. Who wants their hair done by a slob? It's an interesting thing that the lyrics imply that Frenchie might be the sloppiest member of the crew. I don't know if that's a holdover from the stage musical where maybe Frenchie was a very different character, but certainly she's very put together in the movie. Yeah, there's just something so cruel about a daydream that you have telling you that you're absolutely so stupid for pursuing a dream because you'll never amount to anything (laughs) while all your friends sing at you. Oh, it's not super nice. Again, this musical doesn't do great with nice in general. I didn't understand as a child that Frankie Avalon was objectively brilliant casting for this. I just didn't have any sense of him as a 50s teen idol. But looking at it now, he's such a smart choice for the teen angel. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very fun casting. And there are a lot of things about the production of the number that are very fun. I think some crimes are done to Stalker Channing and Marty being up the front in those curlers and being asked to dance in that way. I don't think that was their strength. I believe you're right that the correct choice to move to the front was Jan. She's in the background, but is serving every facial expression I've ever seen. I spent most of this rewatch just staring at her, and it is start to finish genius. I spent most of this initial watch being worried that Frenchie was going to burst into tears at some point during the number, so I didn't have a lot of emotional space to watch everybody else. All of the charm was lost on me for this because Frenchie seemed so sweet, and I didn't know why the movie was doing this to her. I have no defense. She doesn't seem to be that bothered by it. No, she's fine with it. (laughs) But this movie has a bad idea of what teenage girls want, and that is nowhere better exemplified than in the next scene, which is the Vince Fontaine live dance filming that, oh my god, Marty, run away. I have had sort of a faraway look since you started talking about this. One, I did not recognize Marty in that dress as one of their (laughs) friends, so I thought she was an entirely new character. (laughs) That did not, however, change my feelings about that man going straight to prison for being a goddamn predator. It was bonkers to me. I kind of remembered that Marty had a crush on Vince Fontaine, and that does make a certain amount of sense. A teenage girl would absolutely form feelings for someone she saw on TV, being handsome and charming, even though this man is neither. But when he turns around and, like, 
tries to make this happen, I was like, oh, no. Like, I wanted to run out of my own home, perhaps via the window. You have to imagine that that man is traveling around the country or seducing a different teen at every taping of his horrible show. Yeah, we're going to have to stop letting him into high schools unsupervised. We might need to set a number of yards away from them that he has to stay. (laughs) Yes. And the wild part about it is that at first he kind of does it off to the side, which is what a predator would do. But then she's on stage later and he puts his arm around her like he's going to grab her. He, He puts his hand like on her neck. I... I was screaming. Yeah, that suddenly became fucking Exhibit A. Like, sir. (laughs) Yeah, because it is on tape. (laughs) He had such like a Bill Clinton meets John Edwards vibe that I like, I was off, like just scrambling backwards in my seat. Agreed. Leaving Vince Fontaine aside for a second, this is the point where we get the gigantic dance number from everybody. And... It's very exciting, but also highlights how much we have wasted the cast this entire time because they're all delivering amazing, charming, beautiful dance performances. Completely, 100%. This is the first moment where you get to see Travolta being a star. Like, it really overshadows Olivia Newton-John, to be perfectly honest. So... She was initially not supposed to be in this number at all. It was scripted that she would have been cut beforehand, and that's why she was mad that he went to the dance with Cha-Cha or whatever. She requested to be included a little so she could show off some dance moves. It is not her greatest strength, and I think that she was done some favors by being sidelined early so that we could get Cha-Cha in there, because Danny is much better matched with his dancing to Cha-Cha. It's such an awkward bit of story, though, because why would this greaser guy who's like a rebel without a cause be like, oh, I can't wait to be on National Bandstand? Yeah, you absolutely understand from Cha-Cha's point of view where she was like, I'm going to get on TV. I don't care what I have to do. I'm the best dancer at St. Bernadette's or whatever. So she's in her element. But yeah, why wouldn't Danny just like sit down? (laughs) Yeah, it's the same thing as the pep rally. If you guys are too cool for school... Why are you here? I want to quickly point out Annette Charles as Cha-Cha for delivering, like, a punk bar bass soloist facial expressions with everything she does (laughs) with her dancing. She looks stank for all of her moves. It's (laughs) fucking hilarious. Completely. I did not have the word for it, but stank is definitely it. She's a lot. But she is talented enough that it is welcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, she's another one who is fully 29 and looks it like she is an adult woman doing adult woman things on that dance floor. (laughs) All of them are, though. Like, a lot of girls have shown their, like, dancers undergarments in this 1950s show. I think the hand jive number and what follows is the most successful, like, big dance number. Like, and you also get a sense of, like what the stage play would feel like, and it made me want to see the stage play. Yeah, we don't really get another big blowout like this until the very end. Instead, we move on to the unplanned pregnancy subplot, which is wild. I can see the way in which the 1970s 
were trying to talk about how buttoned up the 1950s were with this kind of stuff, but like it absolutely beggars belief that either in 1971 when this musical was written, 1978 when it's produced, or the 1950s that everyone would just be like talking about Rizzo's pregnancy. Like that would have been a big fucking deal. She would have gone away. Yeah. I can remember whispers in my high school in the late 90s about pregnancy, and it wasn't the kind of thing that everyone just shouted about at the movies like it wasn't an issue. Yeah, you either dropped out of high school or we collected money so that you could get an abortion. Congratulations, kids. It was a fun time. (laughs) Again, this is a script that doesn't treat its teenagers like teenagers. This is exactly how a 30-something Rizzo would react to a pregnancy. Absolutely. This is a young girl whose life is about to be devastated. And the movie treats it like kind of a joke that everyone's just like chatting about how she's probably pregnant because she deserved it. I wasn't charmed by it at all. There are lots of ways to inject drama into a teenage relationship between Rizzo and Kanicki. But this one is the kind of thing where she needs to start thinking about, is she dropping out of school? What will her parents say? Like, there's a lot more that we don't look at and makes it feel incredibly sloppy. And I think what's annoying about it is that the movie even represents it that way because I don't have any notes about Rizzo's pregnancy other than, okay, do we all like Rizzo because everyone can't shut their goddamn mouths? But before that, I have a much more important note to my mind, which is, oh no, John Travolta just elbowed her right in the tit. (laughs) Yeah, that's treated with equal weight. If anything, it has more consequence because Sandy leaves and he has a whole song about it. I might lose my woman card for this, but like, Sandy, shit or get off the pot, girl. What do you want here? She's all mad about Cha-Cha. And I'm like, did you expect him to never look at another girl until you arrived? And that level of intensity is matched with her being so excited about getting a ring from him and then being like, oh, well, I don't want to interact in any way. I mean, I get it. He came on strong and she absolutely could have been like, no, you are not touching my boobs tonight. But I I actually I don't want to follow that no, with. No, fuck it. I'm going to add a but. Like, articulate what you want. You were hot for him this summer. Has that ardor cooled? And if not, like. Get yours. Like, she is being confusing. (laughs) It's a weird thing that she fully takes the ring off and is like, I never want to speak to you again. Yeah, as opposed to being like, oh, hey, this is faster than I want to move. Here's what I want to do. Everyone in the world knows that Rizzo is fully pregnant. She might expect that he might want to at least touch part of her body after they've been making out on this beach all summer. We don't know what happened on the beach because we have two very different versions of that story. Maybe they just held hands and drank lemonade the whole time. They did not. (laughs) The movie is irritating because it presents Sandy as someone who is interested in having a physical relationship with a boy and being disappointed that she can't get with this guy that she has the hots for. And then it puts her into like the prude box. Until the end of the movie, when she comes out of the prude box into the tramp box. And I will talk about that in a little bit. But it just, Sandy doesn't seem to have any wants or needs aside from no, not like that. She's a really underwritten character. Let's get to Sandy's transformation, which happens via the car race, which is a nonsense plot point would have excised the entire thing. 
it doesn't make sense for a musical because it doesn't involve any fun musical stuff. It doesn't make sense for this particular plot because, again, this is Kaniki's car and we have to find a way to sideline him so that Danny can be the driver. I don't know why it's particularly impressive to Sandy that Danny can drive a fast car. None of this adds up to anything. What about Sandy's persona that we have learned, which is very little, you're right, indicates that she wants like a fast car guy as her boyfriend? Like what would have made a lot of sense, actually, is if this was a track meet where Danny has to beat Lorenzo Lamas. Then she can at least have the two guys that she's interested in doing something and we can show that Danny has been working to change to be the guy that she seemingly wants, but instead it's just this shit. I absolutely forgot the names of the actors, and I thought you meant that the guy from the Scorpions should run a track meet race, should run a foot race with John Travolta. <laughs> oh no, he smokes a hundred packs of cigarettes a day, there's no way. Oh that guy has been through it. No, he's probably pretty easy to beat on a foot race, I'm gonna go ahead and guess. <laughs> It's like Donald O'Connor levels of cigarettes. Oh, that poor, poor man. Kind of everything after the night at the movies didn't make a ton of sense to me. Like, Sandy didn't know what she wanted. And instead of, like, deciding to want something, she just decided to change everything about herself in order to make herself palatable to a man that she likes because of something she liked a year ago. And it was just dumb. It's very dissatisfying that the next scene is her makeover, specifically because she has had no opportunity to see that he has been doing similar work. It doesn't make sense to show the audience his Letterman sweater when Sandy hasn't seen that. Like, that would be something that would actually appeal to her. Well, a counterpoint to that is that as soon as he sees Sandy dressed like a greaser, he completely abandons the Letterman's jacket, and that's no longer going to be part of it. Danny's transformation is no longer going to be relevant because he now gets back to go to his group of buddies because his girlfriend just decided to get hot and randy instead. Yeah, and he gets to just take off the sweater while she is sewn the fuck into those pants. I can't believe that the upshot of this movie was that this nice girl who was dropped into a high school where everyone was kind of mean to her, decided to change everything about her personality and her morals in order to, like, land a guy. I really thought that there was going to be more at the end, and then the movie just ended. No, it's a bad message, though I will say it's a good song. It is objectively a good song, but the lyrics that Sandy sings make no sense for anything we know about Sandy. It's all about how she needs a man who can satisfy her. And I'm like, literally 20 minutes ago, you wouldn't let him touch your boob. It's so obviously inserted on every level. It is a very 70s song. It is a song for adults. It is a culmination of a plot that didn't happen earlier in the movie. Like, it's slapped on. So again, it transferred into the zeitgeist because it doesn't need to be connected to anything which it isn't. No, the song is a banger. Like, it's good. Watching the actual filmed version of it was, like, pretty off-putting versus the song because, A, she just looks so tarted up, like, I, I couldn't get past it, and it made me sad for her. But B, 
he's doing such a like Aruga shit and like just looking at her like butt and boobs the entire time that I was just like we get it she looks good I was tired by the time we got here part of it too is that it happens so so late like we at least get hints early that Danny is making thoughtful changes that will pay off later whereas she comes out of nowhere with this makeover and I can't even really believe that Frenchie would allow her to do this. Like, or I guess I would have liked to have seen a scene where Frenchie and she talk about like the change she was thinking about making and what she hoped to accomplish from it. Because the message to girls is just like, change everything about your personality in order to suit a man. And I didn't love it. But that's also strange in the sense that it is implied that he did, in fact, sacrifice months of his life at track practices and we just weren't watching. And I know. neither was she. <laughs> I know. A more complex musical is her recognizing that he's made a lot of changes and her being like, all right, I can meet him halfway. Like, I'm going to change up some things about myself, too. But instead, she goes for, like, super tramp and he's just like, Mel, don't need this Letterman's jacket anymore. Let's go bang. Like, it's just... <laughs> that final number is just a goofball spectacular. I don't have a lot to say about it other than it's, like, start to finish bonkers. It's cute. It's nonsense. It feels like the scene at the amusement park in Hairspray, but without any of the interesting political context. I just have so many questions. Why... Is there a carnival at their high school? Why is there a Charlie Chaplin dance break in the middle? Why are none of the lyrics real words? Are we all just friends now? Is everything that happened before forgotten? What's going on? Well, the characters don't have any real character traits. So once Sandy removes the only impediment to their relationship, which is her vestige of personality... They can all just be friends again. And Rizzo isn't pregnant, so there's no problems. And then they fly away in a car. I was so happy we were at the credits. I was like, sounds great. <laughs> you will be happy to know that there is an online fan theory that this entire movie is essentially a Jacob's Ladder situation and that Sandy nearly drowns the beginning the entire movie is a strange fever dream before she dies, and then she flies off into heaven when she passes away on that beach. Having seen the alternative, I want that for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, never has final thoughts been more final than that. So, Brie, <laughs> what are your dying thoughts on Greece? I think I would have really dug this as a kid. I think I've come to it too late. It just feels like they tried to paint a patina of fun on it without it actually having any heart. And the fact that we've seen Hairspray watching this show just made me want to watch that again and leave this shell of that thing behind. I think my final thoughts actually line up very well with that. I appreciate the patina of fun, and that is what I have a lot of nostalgia for. I was surprised at how little was behind it on this rewatching. But when I want to go back to that joyful, pastel-colored, silly-dancing, adults-playing-teens moment, 
I will revisit that and enjoy it. All right. Well, I guess it's time for me to assign another movie. I wish you would. I decided to go with another look at the 1950s. And so after many, many false starts, we are finally going to watch 1996's Big Night. Oh, this has been teased time and time again because you and I both love a Tucci. And I think there are going to be some fun friends that are replaying favorites favorites that is going to get you absolutely amped to watch this movie. Oh, I cannot wait. Friends, please join us next week to watch Big Night. It's going to be, dare I say it, big. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Kinnicky? Mm-hmm. Kinnicky? Kinnicky? That's right, yeah. Kinnicky?